This is Mass and Volume, a podcast exploring topics on cultural identity and social dynamics. I am your host, Scotty Crow. Thank you so much for listening. Here's today's episode. Hello, everybody. This is Scotty Crow with Mass and Volume, and today I have the pleasure of sitting across the table from Jarrett Hill. Jarrett, how are you? I'm well, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for, uh, for making the trek. Um, Jarrett is a journalist and personality and speaks and writes on the intersection of politics and pop culture. Um, I discovered Jarrett, as many, many, many others did, based on uh, a tweet that he published during the Republican National Convention. Uh, drawing the similarities between Melania Trump's speech and Michelle Obama's speech. Indeed, indeed, probably my best tweet. <laughs> uh, they haven't gotten much better than well, that one. Well, it, it would be difficult to top that for sure. Um, I uh, I was listening to a show where you, uh, I'm sure, one of many times that you've rehashed what that experience was like, and I can link that in the show notes. But I was curious because now we're seven or eight months past that. Mm-hmm. Um, on a sc- on the scale of like exhausted to excited to like retell that story, like <laughs> where do you sit right now? I I never bring it up mm-hmm. um, to people anymore unless it's like work or something and like it comes up. But if other people bring it up and they're excited to talk about it, I'm always excited to to have the conversation with people because I'm always fascinated by other people's uh, perspective on the story. Or like my friends will say. Oh my gosh, I woke up and I was scrolling through Twitter and I was like, oh my God, that's Jarrett. Right. That kind of stuff. So right. it's, it's always fun. Well, I think that the, and just to spend a second on this, but I think that the the really powerful thing was that it had such universal appeal, right? Mm-hmm. And and it was such a big deal. And uh, we we connected after the screening of the James Baldwin documentary. Uh, Which oddly, I'm actually going to go see that film after this wow. again today. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, which I've, I've mentioned it on the show many times just because it's one of the most powerful. I, For me, it was a very different experience than watching than 13th. Mm-hmm. They're both incredibly informative and important, necessary watching. But something about uh, I'm Not Your Negro like involves the viewer. Or for me, mm-hmm. I felt so like wrapped in and like complicit in what was going on as opposed to just my awareness increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like shaken by it, like in all the all the best ways. But... Yeah, I, the thing that troubles me the most about I Am Not Your Negro is how relevant it feels, yeah. you know, 40, 50 years later. So. Yeah. But, sorry, I got you Absolutely. off topic. You're no, no, we met okay. at I Am Not yeah, Your Negro. So, yeah, so, so we met after this, and um, I, I was just excited to talk to you because I recognized you, and I was like, I know that guy. I know that guy. I was like, that's right. It's from, it's from that moment. So thank you for, again for taking the time and jumping on the show. My pleasure. Um, so to start, uh, I would love to hear how you identify in the world and what are the markers of your identity that are sort of at the forefront of your character and personality? It's interesting. I, in the last couple of days, I was looking at an interview that I wanted to do. Um, I, was, I heard uh, Senator Kamala Harris. She was being interviewed by David Axelrod on his podcast called The X-Files. Yeah. And she is of Indian and Jamaican American descent. And the questions that she always gets tend to be about being biracial and what that's like and blah, blah, blah. And she was and David Axelrod asked her, like, do you get tired of answering that question? And she was like, no, but I do get asked it a lot. And so then I started thinking about all the different ways that we identify ourselves and how in some places 
one is more dominant than the other. So like I identify as black, as gay, as cisgendered male, um, you know, recovering Christian in a lot of ways, uh, like a lot of different things. And so it's been, it's interesting to me in the ways that, um, that I am, it's interesting to me the ways that I present in different places to different people. Um, some people, you know, I walk in the room and I'm a black man and then I open my mouth and I'm not exactly what people expect because of what they perceive as a black guy. And then I'm gay and then I'm, you know, I, I am a person of faith and all of these different things. So, um, I, I hope that answers your question, but, sure. um, but yeah, that's kind of all of the different things or a few of the different things that I feel like come with me into a space. Absolutely. Uh, you said a phrase that I've never heard before, a recovering Christian. <laughs> I'm curious what that is. Well, I have always identified as Christian. Um, I was, I, that phrase comes from, I always hear Catholics say they're recovering Catholics. Um, but I, I've had a real challenge around where I sit with faith. Um, being gay and black, um, you know, the church is not a huge fan of that, mm-hmm. of being gay. And um, that, that proved a real challenge for me uh, as a teenager and as an adult and not so much now, but it still, you know, kind of lingers in a little bit. Um, And so I've had a hard time identifying as Christian in the last few years because of the ways that I see a lot of Christian people engage people like me. Right. Um, I was born in church, not like on a pew, but like I was, I've been going to church since I was a little boy. Uh, my uncle had a church and like we were there and then we, you know, had another family church that we went to for a long time. And one of the, and my, my coming out story is on, is published in the Huffington Post. And like, I wrote about how difficult it was to hear things in church that did not affirm me. Um, When you go to church, you are looking to be you know, informed and affirmed and all of those different things. And then I, I remember hearing um, a past, my pastor say to single mothers, don't let your boys grow up to be punks and sissies. Hmm. And it's like time kind of froze when he said that, because those were the words that I heard as hate speech as a kid. Right. Um, and it just, it, it was the first time I ever questioned is he up there just talking or is this divinely inspired? Because I can't process the idea that God told him to say, right. don't let your little boys grow up to be punks and sissies. That just didn't resonate with me. And that was one of the moments that I really felt myself starting to grow in a different direction as far as what I believed and what I didn't. I will probably always believe in God, um, but I'll probably always have questions as well about how that plays itself out in religion because right. religion is more of what I have a challenge with not right faith. right well wow. thank you for sharing that yeah. um, I uh, that brings to mind um, I listened to an episode of the uh, Ezra Klein show and mm. he was interviewing Avik Roy and they were talking about um, a bit of the a bit of the disconnect uh, with conservatism but also religion because uh, often like those two groups are very tied mm-hmm. and about how um, there's I do use the word hypocrisy because I'm not trying to point fingers, but about how um, often faith is not the most inclusive way to reach people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Avik Roy, who's a you know very very smart uh, conservative pundit and expert, had said that we need to do a better job of making um, sort of otherness and diversity. Even though I don't love that word, but um, 
like a moral issue and not a political issue, mm. right? And I just love that idea because I think that that's like, that's like a missing centerpiece, I think, with a lot of what's going on right now. But, um, but yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I actually listened to the Axe Files episode last night with uh, mm. Kamala Harris. And um, yeah, I, I love how much they spend on her telling her story of how she is who she is based on like the genealogy, like the people who came before her generations and generations Absolutely. And, and them fighting for the rights. Like that's why she is where she is. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's beautiful and empowering. I guess my next question for you is um, with those markers of identity and, and the person you are, how did those influence you to want to be, you know, a public voice and a writer on the issues that you, mm -hmm. that you pursue in your career now? Um, it's interesting. I don't think, you could have told me in high school that I'd be writing nearly as much as I do right now. Um, when I was in 11th, when I was in 10th grade, my English teacher said to me at the end of the school year, I'm going to be the editor of the newspaper next year. And I think you should come do it. Mm. And I was like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> and no. <laughs> um, and so I, it wasn't even something I was kind of like excited about. I was like, hell no. Like, no, I'm not doing that. Um, but he kept talking to me about it. And he's like, I think you should do this. I think you should be on the paper. Um, and I was like, uh, okay, fine, whatever. And so I did it. And I remember the first big story uh, my, one of my colleagues did with me. Uh, she's a colleague in 11th grade. Um, <laughs> we referred to them as colleagues. Right, <laughs> exactly. I'm in um, homeroom with my colleagues. Right, exactly. Uh, my, our editor and one of my good friends at the time. Uh, we did the story on kids uh, in high school kissing on campus. And we referenced it as like swapping spit or something. And it became an enormous story. Um, and I had never, it was the first time I'd ever written something and seen a response that was like out of control because kids were talking about it all over campus. Teachers were talking about it, but then it became an issue at the PTA and like the school board and people had all kinds of things to say about it. And we were all just blown away. And my our advisor was thrilled. He was like, oh, yeah, this is real journalism. Like, he was excited. <laughs> it went viral. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and so that was exciting. And it kind of showed me the power of writing and, you know, telling stories. And I knew I had always, I had known since I was apparently, according to my dad, five years old, that I wanted to be in television. Um, I would stare at the TV as a kid and say to my parents, like, oh, did you recognize they changed the set? Mm. Oh, the couch is different on Family Matters. Oh, they painted the walls different. Or, you know, or, you know, wow. the music is... And my parents would be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Shut <laughs> up. Like, it was, you know. So um, all of those things probably came together. I wanted to be a combination of, like, Oprah Winfrey and Barbara Walters and um, Regis Philbin and Bob Barker. And, like, I wanted to do game shows and I wanted to do talk shows and all kinds of stuff. Um, and now I get to do a lot of those things. Um with the podcast that I do, we talk about politics and pop culture, as you mentioned. With the writing that I get to do, I get to kind of look at those intersections as well. Um, and now I'm also getting to do other things that are kind of outside the lens of that as well. Um, so it's been an interesting journey in journalism. I, when I told my te that same teacher in 11th grade that I wanted to be a broadcast journalist, he was like, can you talk for a minute about anything? And I was like, I, I, I guess. And he was like, Talk about hot dogs, go. And like two and a half minutes later, he's like, we right. get it, Jared, calm yeah. down. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I've enjoyed writing. I've enjoyed being able to speak to an audience. I enjoy being, you know, being able to do that and, and sharing a perspective yeah. and 
yeah, it's been great. I love that. I, I love that it was something that was like mildly subversive in, in, <laughs> to that newspaper experience. Yeah. Like, was yeah. like the, the origin story. Um, great. So how then, how, how then has your life or the way that you approach your work changed or has it not changed um, with this new administration? Mm. Like, has it, has it influenced how, how you position yourself and how, how your voice is developing? Um, or do you see it as just like, it's the same work that you've been doing and you're here now. And, and so there's more immediacy for it. Um, I would say it's a little bit of column and a little bit of column B. So prior to this, when I was, you know, as every headline about me said, unemployed journalists, laid off journalists, journalists that don't have no job. Um, (laughs) I, before that I was more general assignment, um, as a reporter, um, and for an ABC affiliate in Florida. And so, I was covering all kinds of different topics. Sometimes politics would be involved, but sometimes it was technology. Sometimes it was whatever. Hot dogs. Exactly. I, you know, had to talk, do two and a half minutes on a hot dog. <laughs> um, but uh, I wasn't providing commentary so much as I was reporting the stories. Um, and after this happened, I got asked a lot more for political commentary, which was comfortable for me because I've always been opinionated and, you know, I've written for Huffington for a long time and other places. So it wasn't unusual for me to express my opinion or, you know, provide my own perspective and analysis. Um, But it's been, I had not done that. I had never done that on television regularly. And I was actually thinking about this recently on my way to CNN um, to do a hit. And I was, trying to understand why it was feeling different to me and that was what occurred to me like I'm used to giving the facts and this is you know the information and when I'm doing that like I've scripted out you know the places I want to go over the course of my time whereas when I go to CNN now it's like oh I, I want to make sure that I say blank or I want to make sure that I say this but you don't know what the questions are going to be as they're coming at you right um and so I oftentimes come off the air feeling differently, like, oh, what did I say? Did I say that right? Did that make sense? Did I use the wrong word? Did I, you know? Um, so for me now, I find the work feels different um, in a way that is kind of stretching me and expanding me and, and growing me even. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas before, I felt like I had started, I had just started kind of getting bored. Hmm. Um, I had just started kind of feeling like it was too formulaic. And like, okay, so this is the story. Okay, do this interview, figure this out, build that graphic. Mm-hmm. Let's go present it. Um, now I feel like I'm always on my toes. Yeah. And you asked about this administration. This administration is putting everyone on their toes. Um, back when it was this candidate, back when it was this president-elect, and now when it's this president, it's so hard to unplug for a day because so much can happen in a day. Yeah, so... Uh, I, w- I want to ask you about one thing you said, but just on that point, I wanted to ask you as well, as a consumer of news, mm-hmm. it's I find it impossible to unplug for a day or half a day. And not necessarily because I'm addicted to it, but just because I don't know if I've ever existed in a time when like there's just been a barrage of things that felt like they were important or an attack or relevant to mm-hmm. things that I really care about. And I'm wondering, as a writer, how do you navigate that? Um, and I think both in terms of consuming, but then also like how, how do you run that through a filter to decide what you're actually going to speak or write about? Mm. Um, hmm. the thing that's coming to mind immediately is I am as much of a consumer of news as anyone 
you know, that I know. Um, and then I contribute to news as well, right? So I find myself literally taking days where I will turn off all my notifications and just try and unplug from it. Um, I took a week off from social media right the week before the inauguration because I knew like we're about to step on the gas. Yeah. Um, and not knowing what was going on as regularly or not being alerted by a tweet or by a push alert or whatever, um, it felt so great. Mm. <laughs> it was really mm. nice. Um, but I was also having like anxiety being like, oh my God, what's happening? What's going on? I should go check. I should, you know. Right. But um, it's hard because he's the president, President Trump says so much mm -hmm. and so much of it is so verifiably untrue. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing as a journalist now is, and, and I this is not an original thought, but what's interesting about it now is if you ever take something that he's said or done and fact check and say, actually, this isn't quite accurate, you know, this isn't the largest crowd that we've seen at an inauguration or, or whatever the story may be, it's not received now by a lot of people as, oh, this is news, this is journalism, this is, you know, someone covering a story. It's received as you're against the president mm. and you're wrong. Mm. And there's an interesting dynamic that comes along with an audience that, that has a vested interest in not believing what you say now. That wasn't the role of media before, you know, that wasn't the, the perception of media. And so it's a real challenge now to figure out like, if you're doing a news story, how do you say that he was not telling the truth without alienating an audience? Right. It's almost like there's no such thing as an objective voice anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Everything everything becomes a bias, and that's not the intention. Well, we've never had to argue about facts before. Right. I mean, right. not nearly as much as we do now. Right. So it make, when we can't agree on the facts, like, where can you even really start a conversation? It's true. So Yeah. The other thing you mentioned when you were talking about sort of the shift that you're going through is you said that you basically said that you feel like you're being pushed and you sense that you're growing a, mm -hmm. a little bit and I'm paraphrasing a bit, but I found that in like my aspirations as, as a writer and any sort of creative endeavor that I've done, I've vacillated in between places that I felt very comfortable, but mm -hmm. then feel that learning curve flattening out. Mm -hmm. And then times when I feel like I'm trying to write about something that I don't really have the skill to, mm. right? Like I'm pushing myself outside of that mm -hmm. and it's difficult and ultimately it proves that I'm not an expert at it. Um, <laughs> but I, I find that I grow and then the next time I get closer and closer to it. Is there anything that you do to, that's a practice to help, to help you push that and like draw the best version of yourself out of you? Um, hmm. I, the thing that I've enjoyed a lot lately is talking to other people that do what I do, but have been doing it longer than me. Mm -hmm. um, because one, it's a bit validating and affirming to hear someone talk about their process of getting ready for, you know, commentary or writing a piece or whatever. Um, and everyone does something a little bit different, but I have been enjoying asking people like, so how did you get ready for that? And they'll say, oh, you know, I read this, I did that. I, mm -hmm. you know, wrote down a couple of points. And I feel like that is helping me to grow a bit. Um, and, and tell me if I'm not answering your question, but I feel like that is kind of expanding me a little bit more and a little bit more. I, there was a time where I'd, I'd spent about two and a half years doing stand-up. Um, and to be fair, every month I say I'm going to go back and do more stand-up. Uh -huh. I haven't done it in five years. So there's that. Um, but it was interesting to me because it was the first time I had been on a stage with a microphone in front of people that I was uncomfortable mm -hmm. 
I, since I was a kid, have been comfortable standing up in front of an audience mm. and, you know, talking. But every time I would go to stand up, my heart would pound a little bit and I'd be nervous and anxious. And I would come off stage and be like, holy crap, what did I just say? What did I do? Does that make sense? Um, so that I could feel myself growing and expanding um, and just being oddly nervous. So I don't know if that answers your question sure, or not. Yeah. But um, yeah. And, yeah. And the question's a little, it's a little abstract. I was just yeah, curious yeah. to hear. Um, I actually, so I did stand up for the first time about a year ago, mm -hmm. a little less than a year ago, and I really enjoyed it. I don't want to, I don't think I want to be a comic, but <laughs> I think for all those things that you said, I was mm -hmm. like, ah, I, I like storytelling. I like being on, on a stage in yeah. front of people. Um, but also every time I've done it, I've like blacked out while I've done it. <laughs> and, then, and then I leave and all my friends are telling me that it went great. And I watched the video back. I'm like, wow, that was actually all right. And I, I in it, I'm just like, I, I don't recall anything from the actual experience of it. So I have that experience rarely but i actually tend to have more frequently the complete opposite experience it's hyper i'm like hyper aware mm -hmm. i'm like seeing every face i always say there's two narratives running like there's one that is running through the top of my head and there's one that's running through like the lower part of my head and streaming out of my mouth <laughs> where i'm like i'm talking i'm talking and i'm you know doing a setup for a bit or whatever but in my brain i'm like holy crap i'm on stage right now yeah oh my god they're looking at me yeah oh my god what am i wearing you know, like I'm having like a whole conversation in my head and like my mouth kind of goes into autopilot. Mm -hmm. So it's it's the exact opposite. And I'm seeing every single thing. In the yeah. Room. yeah. I would just love to give, get your opinion in terms of to go back to this intersectionality of politics and pop culture. Um, I think that it's it's it seems very obvious to me that there's been a strong, strong influence on what's happened in the country. I think definitely post Trayvon, but obviously like everything over the past five years and how that's been just a wave like mounting in terms of our awareness of social justice mm -hmm. and privilege and the dialogue on race. And I would love to hear like, who are your favorites or who are like, like the champions that you hold in terms of like the movement in pop culture that's paying more attention to social change and social justice. Mm -hmm. Like, like what are the pieces of, of, of music or film or art or writing or anything that you think like everyone should pay attention to. And even if they know it, right. Like even if it's Beyonce, like, mm -hmm. like, like why, what, like why, why is what she's doing really important? It's interesting. Uh, as you're asking the question, I'm like running through my mind, the different people that I follow or the things that I read or whatever. And I'm starting to actually find it in everything now. Mm. Um, I mean, you said Beyonce and like if there's no way that you can look at Beyonce and not look at like what she did with formation at the Super Bowl or the song Freedom or like the different things and not see some kind of political messaging there. Um, I that's so it's hard to pinpoint that specifically um, in a very Sarah Palin, what newspapers do you read kind of way? But like <laughs> but like I I you know, I follow a lot of people on Twitter. I I love you know, Joy Reid's take on just about everything um, when it comes to, to politics and, you know, uh, what's happening in the culture. I love Sean King. I've known Sean for a number of years and I, I don't always agree with him on everything, um, but I think his voice is so important. Mm -hmm. And I think what he's, what he's doing is really, really important. Um, I, <laughs> I was just listening to Solange's album again this morning Me and too. yeah, like, uh. and I was listening and she has a song called for us by us. And in the lyrics, 
she says something to the effect of um, basically saying like, if you can't sing along to this, don't be mad about it. This ain't for you. And like, that's even political, right? Like yeah. that's, a, that's a decidedly political song where she's talking about this song is for us. And don't, she says, um, don't be mad if you can't sing along. Just be glad you have the whole wide world or something like that. Um, and so I only really started looking at the world through this lens of everything is political, maybe in the last year and change. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had a friend say to me, um, King of King of Parm, who's on my show often. Um, she was, she said to me, sorry, there sorry. you go. No, sorry. get it. No, get it. 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 It's only because, um, <laughs> so, uh, Angela Flournoy wrote a piece about Forest Bias mm. in this New York times piece about like the 25 songs that are defining 2017. Oh, really? So it's, you know, so I love that you are an expert at what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, please. Um, but, uh, my friend Kenya said to me, we we're going into somewhere and she was like, being black is inherently political. Mm. And I was like, whoa. She was like, yeah, you don't, you don't get the opportunity to not care. You don't get the opportunity to not pay attention. Um, and I started thinking about that from the perspective of me as a black man, as a gay man, as a black and gay man. Um, but then I also, I have a client who I work with um, and she runs this media company that focuses on intersectional feminine, um, feminism. And she's Indian. And, you know, her staffers, there's a trans person, there's a queer person, there's like all kinds of different people on her staff. And I started thinking about, oh, what is it like to think about racism from her perspective as an Indian woman? As we're talking about, you know, Oscars so white and, you know, this last year that we had at the Oscars um, where so many people of color, namely black people, um, were were honored. And so then I started thinking about like, oh, but we don't have like Asian representation. We don't have, you know, uh, there's a lot of representation that's missing. Um, so... I really am starting to see politics in every single thing that I do. And when I say politics, I mean lowercase p, not uppercase p. Like, it's not all about Washington and what's happening in the White House. Sometimes it's about the way that my employer interacts with me because of who I am or where I come from or, you know, what I bring into a space. Um, And, I mean, to be honest with you, that just happened to me this past week. Another, uh, I'm supposed to be taking a meeting at a major meeting um, at a major network or whatever. And... I opted out of taking the meeting just because I didn't like the way that I had been interacted with for a number of weeks. Hmm. Um, And thinking about that company's history with people of color. And I was like, you know what? I, I I hate to make everything political, but I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to be there and I don't want to be a part of what they're doing. And I don't want to put up with the way that they've been handling me or, or, you know, taking my meeting or whatever. So it's a very broad answer, but I feel like I'm starting to see politics in every facet of my life, now, yeah. which sometimes I kind of hate. Let's just be honest. But like, right. but I mean, it's the truth. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of the price of being awake, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the uh, the Fader had um, a number of their staff write pieces on uh, feminist intersectionality. Mm. And it was really enlightening. And I think it was a reminder that I mean, they all sort of wrote how, how they identify in the world and they realize that even as a woman or as a Asian woman or as a black woman, um, they still carry levels of privilege, right, mm-hmm. over other types of women and other types of people. And the idea, uh, someone said something like, anytime she writes a story, she always questions, 
is she the best person to write this story? Yeah. Right. No matter how aware or how inclusive she's trying to be. Um, and that the key is to listen. It's like, listen more than we speak. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's such a important reminder and valuable takeaway. Well, and I was talking about the client that I have and I am sometimes probably hyper aware of my, of the privilege that I come into a space with. Um, and you know, the ways that that works for and against me. But I know, for instance, I've worked with a lot of women. Um, the majority of my bosses have been women. And I'm always conscious of how my interactions with them are going with, with women. And like, I'm trying not to make sure that I'm not over talking them or that I'm not, you know, um, doing anything that would <laughs> really be anti-feminist. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm always very aware of, of myself to a point where I, I want to make sure that I'm being inclusive and being affirming and being accepting and, but also not being like a pushover. Right. Um, and, and it's a, it's a challenging line, line to walk. Um, but I'm, I, I just try to always think about how other people are receiving something and how you're impacting a space. Cause I think that's really important. Yeah. Fully agree. Um, so I, in the podcast by asking every guest, uh, these two questions, mm -hmm. they're rather open-ended, but I like hearing, um, what bright people respond to them or me, I guess, but yeah. <laughs> or Jared Hill. <laughs> uh, so the, the first question is, um, what is it that matters most to you? Hmm. I think what matters most to me right now, the, the thing that is ringing in my head is opportunity. Mm. Um, I'm always concerned. I'm always thinking about opportunity and like the opportunities that are available to me and the opportunities I can make available for other people um, from the perspective of privilege and, you know, access and all those things. Um, and I think that most people are always trying to find the right opportunity to participate in conversation, the right opportunity to, you know, level up themselves in, in their professional life or in their love life or whatever. Um, so I'm out right now. I feel like at this point in my life, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about opportunity and how important it is to, to seize opportunities. Um, so yeah, hmm. that's the first thing that comes to mind. I like that. And I like too, that it's, it's not just, uh, we don't, we usually associate that word with meaning one thing, right? Hmm. But it can mean extending opportunity mm -hmm. as opposed to just taking advantage of opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then the second question is, uh, what is one thing that you think, if, if you could, mm -hmm. everyone in the world should do every day? Affirm themselves and someone else. Hmm. Um, my, this is kind of related to that. My mom, when I was, we, we talked about church earlier, and my mom used to do announcements when I was a kid. And so every day she'd get up there and, you know, we're having a bank sale, whatever. Um, and, Shout out to my mom. Um, shout out to <laughs> and shout out to bake sales. Shout out to the bake sale. It's important. Um, but she would always end her announcements by saying, and if you see someone without a smile, give them one of yours. Uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, and as a kid, it was like, oh, shut up. Like, it's so lame. And, but as an adult, I'm like, that's so deep. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> and so I, I because there's so much in that one statement like if you see someone without a smile give them one of yours it's like that doesn't cost you anything and it does something for someone else um 
And sometimes the person that you have to give a smile might be yourself. Mm. Sometimes you just have to like take a pause in the mirror and say, how are you? Yeah. Maybe not out loud. Maybe out loud. Maybe you know, out whatever. Loud. Maybe. I always do it out loud. <laughs> but like, I mean, it's important. Um, and I, there's a commercial a long time ago where someone's walking down the street and they smile at a person and that person smiles at the next person. And you know, it's mm-hmm. that kind of paying it forward, I guess. Um, and I just always think about that when I'm walking down the street. And so I, I will always take the opportunity to tell someone that they look nice mm. or I love your outfit mm. or, you know, um, to tell a server's manager that they were fantastic today. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like it's like a little thing that you can do that doesn't cost you anything that can improve someone's day. Mm-hmm. Um, did I answer your question? Yeah, for sure you did. And, <laughs> and to me, it also feels like that's an extension of a way of like seeing somebody and acknowledging mm-hmm. them. Right. Like, um, it's not just a superficial thing. Yeah. Like it's, it's a moment of connection. I think that's really important at the, uh, the folks at the view, they were at, at Disney world this week and I saw like one of the episodes and they had just opened this new land of avatar or called Pandora or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've never forgotten the last moment in that film. And this isn't a spoiler, but like it's like a close up on eyes and they're being opened. Um, and they've said throughout the film, this phrase that means I see you. Um, and the word see wasn't about what you do with your eyes. It's about what you do with your heart. Mm. And I see you, like I see you as a person, I see you as a human being, and I see you, I believe they said, I see you as who you've always been. And I just thought that was so important. I thought like, wow, what if we all really did work to see each other, Mm -hmm. to acknowledge someone's present, not just like, oh, I see you sitting there. It's like, I see you as as a person, as a, as a being, as a, um, as a son, as a brother, as an uncle, as, you know, a contributor, as a filmmaker, as a writer, as all of these different things, um, that just really moved me. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, it was, yeah. it was really moving to me. Yeah. Um, that is a beautiful place to stop. Well, I there think. we go. Um, Jared Hill, thank you so much. Of course. Um, I will, uh, I'll mention all the places that people can find you and, and track along for that next 25,000 retweet that's on the way here we go it's happening (laughs) um is there anything else that you're working on that you want to mention before we wrap up yeah i um the show that i do is called back to reality and um as you mentioned we focus on the intersection of politics and pop culture um so we do news stories but we also do entertainment and you know different things that our friends are talking about um so that's myself and i always have a panel of guest co-hosts for the hour um we do that show with nbc blk now um and it's so it's live on facebook and it's downloadable as a podcast so you can find that at back to reality in your iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts, back to reality with the number two. Um, and I really love that. Um, it's It's been really, really great for me. And as the show has evolved over the course of five and a half or six years, um, it's been, I've evolved over the last, you know, five, six years and the show has evolved and we've had a really good time um, with really fun discussions, but also sometimes really heavy discussions mm-hmm. um, on, on what's happening in the world. And then we do what we call the situation ship where we, I always say our lovely listener has sent us a letter asking us to give them advice. We give them our advice and then we ask them not to take it. Um, but we have a good time with that because it's a fun sitting around the table conversation about you know love relationships and things like that. So um, you can check out Back to Reality. Our website is Get Back to Reality with the number two, getbacktoreality.com. Um, I'm also contributing for the New York Times and NBCNews.com and a lot of different stuff. So Love all it. that's on the Twitter machines. So. Love it. Yeah. Great. Awesome. <laughs> Uh, Thank you again so very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you so very much for listening to this episode of Mass and Volume. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, we are at Mass and Volume. Our website is massandvolume.me. And on the website, each audio file is paired with a companion essay. And in that essay, we also list any links or references that the guest or myself may have made in our chat today. If you're listening to us on iTunes, thank you very much. If not, you can subscribe. And if you happen to like what you hear, we would love for you to rate and or review us there. Thank you so very much, and we will see you soon. Hear you soon. You'll hear us soon. I hope you hear us soon. Okay, I'm done. Bye. I mean, um, I, I, w- I was asked to speak at this event uh, last week, mm-hmm. and they basically wanted three people to come in and speak for 10 minutes about anything they wanted, but it couldn't have anything to do with any job they've ever had. Mm. Um, which at first I was like, no problem. And then I realized like all the rad stuff that's happened to me has actually been th- related to a job. That's so hard. It, oh my it, gosh. it actually is fairly difficult. But so I, um, but I, so I, I picked this, this thing that I sort of referred to comedically in stand up and was like, I'll expand that because it's oversharing. And I feel like if I just go into a room and overshare, then it'll either like win or not. <laughs> but I'll be myself. Um, but even that, like, that's sort of like, oh, just like, talk about something for 10 minutes is so much less pressure mm-hmm. than like you have five minutes and the goal is to entertain everybody in this room in a very specific way. It's so gnarly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's scary, fun, weird, awkward. Yes. Always one word with no spaces. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. I love that word. Yeah. <laughs> um, sort of, it's like the 2017 super, fa- super califragilistic. I mean, yeah, basically. I could go for that. Yeah. I'm I'll call it. the folks at Oxford and get back to you. <laughs>